So we are uh, finishing up our series on David and, and we've talked about David and uh, Saul, uh, David and Jonathan, about friendship, and about David and uh, Bathsheba, uh, about, uh, I guess, his, his adulterous relationship and what kind of went on from there. And um, today we're actually talking about David uh, and his family. And when we talk about David and his family, I, I wish it was a, a great story, because we know David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, that's one reason God chose him, that he had this amazing love for God. But unfortunately, his family was kind of a mess, like, like a really big mess. Um, and it's really heartbreaking because I know as a parent, what I, what I yearn for the most is I want my kids to turn out better than me. I want them to have uh, a greater life than me, more opportunity. I want them to be a better version of me. Um, but in many ways, what happened with David's family is actually he, they end up picking up parts of his life that they probably shouldn't have. And it becomes this kind of a big mess. And we get to learn more about David and actually what happens to him in the second half of his reign. We know that he was a great uh, soldier. He was a great tactician. He did amazing things like he united uh, the divided kingdom of Israel at the time, Judah and Israel. And he brought them under his own kingship. Um, he transformed from the time of King Saul into a time where everyone was kind of united, and they were fighting wars, and they were winning, and they were victorious, and they saw God increase their fame and renown. But in David's own family life, it, it really was a mess. When we look at it, actually, we can find out a little bit more about David and kind of what's been happening to him. Um, I'm going to throw this question out. Do you guys know how many wives David actually had? How many wives did David have? If you're here this morning, don't unless you've slept through the whole service, then you can answer now. Any guesses? 32? That's a nice number. Not that many. Less? Lower? Lower? 31. Yeah, someone made a similar joke this morning. Um, seven? Seven is close. Seven is really close. Uh, actually, it's the Chinese person's favorite number. Ah, there you go. Uh, it's a... Uh, <laughs> Well done, Chinese person. Um, he actually had uh, eight, eight wives, and uh, he had a ninth, uh, ninth woman who was not his wife. But in his old age, they said, let's send this young woman to be with him in bed to keep him warm. Um, so not necessarily a wife, but not also not the same as a concubine. It's a very awkward thing. What happens later is actually one of David's sons says, oh, if I can marry this girl, can I marry this comfort woman of king my dad because uh possibly maybe then i can have some claim to the throne and solomon has him killed instead um but this is uh the the eight you can see the eight and abishag was the yeah so she gets mentioned she's not quite a wife not quite a concubine uh you know Bathsheba. um she's the one that shows up the most um michelle my, Michelle, um, she, uh, she was actually King Saul's daughter, um, and she was the one that they married, uh, he married. Um, now, if, I, I'll be honest with you, I have, I have one wife, I, I'm the husband of one wife, and having one wife alone, um, it takes a good amount of effort. It is a great joy, but trying to learn and understand my, my one wife is a lot of fun. A lot of challenging fun, but really great. I can't imagine what it's like to have eight wives um, all at the same time. Like, it would be quite a 
a challenge. Um, and we, we find this in David as well because you discover that maybe he doesn't actually know all these wives that well. And maybe back in that time, polygamy was more common. But we do know that God still didn't really approve of this. Like, he still wanted it to be one wife. But David, like probably his uh, parents before him and other people before him and the tribes around him, they all kind of did this. So he had this money. Now, the next question I want to ask is, if he had eight wives, how many sons do you think he had? Now, the Bible doesn't, I don't think they list every single son, but they list a number of them. Now, I, they only list one daughter. Only one daughter shows up, but I'm sure there are many more daughters. The one daughter's name is Tamar. We will hear about her. Just throw out a ballpark figure. How many sons do you think are named in, in the Bible? Or, or listed in the Bible? 22. 32. Oh, you should have stuck with the one I said. Oh, yeah, 22. That's amazing. That's uh, 22 for your two for two tonight. So there are actually 20, 22 sons get listed out in, in the Bible. Um, and uh, two of them are actually unnamed. Two are unnamed, but there's 20 named sons. Now, I myself have two sons, both named, um, and uh, they take up a lot of my energy. Now, I know back in the day you would have more sons because you want to make sure, or, or children, because you want to make sure if, you know, they would die, you had some other one to replace them and stuff like that. Um, so having so many would be good, but trying to keep track of so many sons, I'm sure that's pretty difficult. Now, what makes it more fun is these are not all from the same woman, which would be pretty powerful woman. Uh, but instead, you can see they're kind of distributed. These ones, the Bible doesn't even bother listing who these people's mothers are. So we don't hear very much about them, except these were the sons of David. Amnon was the oldest. He was the firstborn son, which means he would be heir to the throne, which means he also ends up probably being the favorite. Uh, Daniel, uh, sorry to tell you this, Daniel, but you died pretty early on. You don't hear very much about him. In, in fact, they stopped mentioning him because he pretty much, you guess he died, which means Absalom uh, who is the second. He's the second oldest son. And Absalom is known for him. He's like, the two things he's, well, he's known for a lot of things, but something they say is he was really good looking. And he also had really long hair. So he could actually do this, and it worked. But um, he, was, um, he was very good-looking, and he had very long hair. And his sister was Tamar. 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 We'll just call her Tamar. Um, and she was also very beautiful. So uh, my guess is that Macca was, was really beautiful, not from McDonald's. Um, Adonijah, uh, he shows up a little bit later. Then a couple of these other guys, they don't really make a difference. Now Bathsheba, she's most famous, and this first unnamed son is the one who dies. Uh, she is the one who, uh, he's the one who dies because of he was born in adultery. And then there's a, two other sons whose names um, you should consider if you're having children. These are the names you should name your kids, Shimea and Shobab. Um, really good. Interestingly enough, also names him uh, one of their children, Nathan. Now, Nathan was the prophet who actually showed up to say, David, dude, I know what you've been up to, and this is it. And David gets really convicted. And David eventually names one of his own sons after him, uh, Nathan. Uh, and then, of course, we know Solomon, who becomes the next uh, actual king. Now, with so many people in his family, right, eight wives, uh, one companion woman, 
Uh, on top of that, he has numerous concubines. There's one point in his kingdom they say, uh, let's leave ten concubines behind uh, while I have to flee from my son who's starting rebelling against me, uh, and I'll run away, and we'll leave these ten concubines here. And uh, Absalom, the guy actually who's uh, starting a little revolution against his dad, uh, comes and says, oh, I'm going to sleep with one of these concubines so that I have a greater claim to the throne. And so you can see women are very much treated like property in these times. He has 20 sons, two unnamed sons, and one named daughter. Now, trying to manage all these people would be very difficult. And you discover some things about David at this time and what, what he's actually like with his family. He was unfortunately a very distant father. He didn't really know his family that well. He didn't know his kids very well, and he wasn't present all the time. And, and that's a hard lesson for us to see. And this is actually the first lesson that I want us to talk about and think about. The lessons that we learn from David and his family are lessons that we learn from his mistakes, things that we say, well, actually, how can these things be different? And the first lesson that we have to look at is actually be present. Be present in the relationships that you have and with the people that you're around. And if you're a parent, be present in their lives. Let me, let me elaborate a little bit more. And this is a, a pretty brutal story that happens, but kind of lets you see what kingdom, King David was like as a father. So in course of time, Abnon, son of David, the oldest son, um, fell in with Tamar, the daughter of the second wife. Uh, no, the daughter of the third wife, uh, whose brother was Absalom, right? Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. It's funny, right? Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, this is all laying it out like this. Uh, Amnon falls in love with his half-sister, and he says he's in love. But the way it's being described here isn't like I really love or I really care about this person. It is almost this purely lustful kind of love. I desire her so much. It's almost Shakespearean, right? Oh, I will die if I'm not with her, and I'm so sick in my heart that I can't be with her. But then it brings out this point that she was this virgin. In other words, that he doesn't love her as a a woman or a person that he wants to spend his life with. He loves her like an object that just wants to be with her. So what happens is actually um, he gets so ill, and he's like, uh, he's, he's saying, oh, I'm so forlorn because I, I am so passionately in love with this person that his uh, helper, his servant, comes and says, oh, what's the deal? What's, why are you so downcast? And, you know, it's like, oh, because I'm, I'm in love with Tamar, my half-sister, and, uh, you know, I can't be with her. And uh, the guy, his servant says, oh, well, why don't you, you know, you should actually pretend to be sick, and we'll come up with this plan so that you can actually be with her. So that's what he does. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill, like physically ill, like so ill that the king has to come. So when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. That's a weird request, right? Like, oh, go get my sister to make me some mimbao. Um, like, David, David is, David's king. Like, and he, you get this picture that he's there because he's kind of present with his family, but he has no idea what's going on. He doesn't really understand the situation. He can't even tell that his son is faking being sick. Now, I, I tell you, when I was a kid, I faked being sick a lot. You know, like that was one of the things I did, you know. I really, because I didn't want to go to a piano lesson or I didn't want to go to school. And so I know all the tricks for how to be, look like you're sick, you know. My parents never fell for it. They'd always still send me to school. Um, you know, David comes and says, oh, you, you poor thing. Oh, what's wrong with you? Are you dying? He says, Oh, I want my sister to make me bread. 
Like, what is he, like five? It's like this ridiculous kind of situation. But what does King David do? He says, okay, sure. Oh, send for my, your sister and go to the house of your brother and make him some food. I think there's a tendency for us in our relationships or in our family for us to be present there but not really be present. You, you know what it's like, right? You're hanging out with your friend and then you're looking at your phone at the same time. And you're not, you're not even really necessarily messaging a friend or talking about something. You're just scrolling through someone else, your Instagram, so that you can pretend that you're present with some, you know, fashionista. But they don't really care. No one cares. But you're not present in that moment. And David is there, but he, at the same time, he's not, right? He's there, but he's not. And we have this thing as well. Now, this is a real problem, because if you're there in a place, but you're not really there, it means that you're not actually developing this relationship. Now, now break that down into all your relationships. And let's start with the first and most important one, your relationship with God. Like, it's easy to, to show up and read your Bible and pretend you're reading something. It's easy to show up to church and say, oh, yeah, yeah I'm here. But at the same time, you're, you're thinking about something else, or you're looking at something else. And I've been there, too. I mean, now with mobile phones, it's really easy to pretend you're reading the Bible. But actually, you're scrolling through your news feed, or your Instagram feed, or you're watching TikTok videos. I don't know what you're doing. I don't care what you're doing. I mean, I, I, I kind of know sometimes what you guys are doing, because you think no one notices, but no one reads the Bible that fast. Uh, you know, there's this thing where we think we are present with God, but we're not. What's worse is... God is present with us, but we're not there with him. Now, you break that down to your family. And as parents, one of the hardest things is trying to be present for your children. I was thinking about King David. He's busy. He's a king, right? He has lots of things to do. Actually, to be fair, in the second half of his reign, he's out less. He's not out fighting the wars. He's not out fighting the battles. He's loitering on rooftops, checking out women on rooftops, right? Like, he's up to no good. He's just wasting his time. He's idling around. But he's not spending time with his family. He's not getting to know his kids. He's not saying, this is the next generation who will rule my kingdom. Maybe I should teach them about a relationship with God. Instead, he's just doing his own thing. And I get it. You're tired. We're tired after a long day. You don't have energy. And you don't want to be there. But at the same time, you should. For a lot of us, we complain a lot of times about our friends. We don't have good friends. We don't have close friends. We don't have friends in this new place, and, and we don't know what to do. And we want these things just to happen. But actually, to do that, you really have to be present in a place to really say, you know what? I'm here. This is where I need to be. This is how I will make these relationships happen. They don't just happen by magic. You have to invest in them. And in this picture, we're seeing that David's not. It gets a bit worse, actually, for, for David's family. And we'll see what happens here. When King David—oh, uh, sorry. I actually didn't say what happened. So Amnon is lying in bed, and he's there, and he's like, Oh, my sister, come make me bread. So she's there. She needs the dough. She makes the dough. She bakes the bread. She says, I've made the bread now. He says, Oh, can you feed, put it in my mouth? Can you feed it to me? She says, Okay. And then he says, Everyone else leave the room. Everyone leaves the room. Then he takes it, and she's like, why aren't you eating the bread? She says, I don't want the bread. I want you. And he grabs her by the wrist. And she's like, uh, don't do this. I'm your sister. Actually, if you want to marry me, I bet if you talk to the king, he would let you marry me because that's something that they would be allowed to because we're half siblings. You know, it's okay. He's like, no, 
I want you now. And then he rapes her. He rapes her, and then he's so disgusted with her after raping her that he just commands her to leave. Just get out of here, he says. And then she just has to leave. And she says, no, don't send me away because I'm going to be so disgraced now. Tell the king so that now we can be married. He says, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm so disgusted with you. Get out of this place. And he sends him away. And this is a, hor- this is a horrible act that's just happened. He's raped his half-sister. He's just cast her aside, which means she's not going to be able to marry anyone else. She's going to be destitute. She has to live just wherever she's living. And the shame that's upon her is like horrible. It's crazy because when King David heard all this, he was furious. But, but that's it. He doesn't do anything. Like, he doesn't say, Amnon, you have to marry Tamar. Even though that is within the law, he can request that because of what he's done. He doesn't say that. He just says, oh, okay, I'm really mad. The Septuagint uh, has this extra part, which they found in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls to this line, and which is why it's in the Bible, because it's only in a few scraps. But it says, oh, David did not do anything to Amnon because he was his firstborn and he loved him. There's a sense that, like, David looks at the situation, he's like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it bad for my, my oldest son, that he somehow justifies what's happened. This is his oldest son. This is his daughter. This is, you know, the the sister to his second son. And he just doesn't care. When we talk about really being present or being aware or being alive in people's relationship, we have to say to ourselves, well, really, what does it look like for us? When we think about David as a father, you know, when he does nothing, and the question is, like, how come he doesn't do it? It's because he doesn't know how to punish his kids. He didn't pick up on any of these signs before. He doesn't know anything that's going on in their life. He's king and father, but he's completely absent. Now, now for myself, I think about this a lot. Because I think to myself, are, are there places in my life where I'm so absent that I'm not present in that moment that actually by doing so, I'm causing more harm than good? So one of the things as a pastor, one of the things I do is I, I listen to uh, people. I, I talk to them. I share with them. I cry with them. Uh, I spend time with them. And um, I enjoy it. It's good. But I also notice I, at one point I, I'd go home and I'd be like, okay, well, I'm done. My, I finished my job, so I'm going to go home. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And um, uh, kids want to play with me. My wife wants to talk to me. And I'll be like, uh, I'm not pastor anymore. I don't, I, I, it's not my job. I don't have to listen to you. I just do whatever I want to do, right? Like, and it's not because I'm, I'm mean or I don't love my kids. It's just because I'm tired. Like, after working, you get tired. After expending emotional energy for other people, it's tiring. And so I'm just like, well, I don't, I just, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm your dad. I'm your husband. You should take care of me, right? And it's so easy for me to just be selfish, to be like, no, you should listen to me. And I got really convicted one of these days because I realized, oh, actually, I'm starting to watch my son grow up, but I don't really know what's going on in his life. I don't really know him anymore. And I was like, I realized even for my wife, like, I'd, I'd, I know who she is, but, you know, there's a distance growing between us. And it really convicted me because I realized, Bert, you know, when you go home, you know, yeah, you can, you're a pastor at church. But when you go home, it doesn't mean that you can suddenly just become a, a horrible person. You still have to love and you still have to listen. You have to be there. Whatever giftings that God has given me, is not just to be used to the church, it's to be used with the people who are around me. 
I have to invest and be present there. It's funny because I want so hard for my kids to be great or to grow and to be loving in God. But if I'm not there learning how to listen or to be there present in their life, then it's almost pointless, right? And so I started to change, like, what I do. I'm trying better to listen to my son, try to talk to him more. And I realized, yeah, um, I'm not that good at it. Um, it's funny because when you're a parent, you always see your child as younger than, than they really are. Like, I'll talk to other 12-year-olds in church completely different than the way I'll talk to my son. Like, and I'll see them completely different. I'll look at this 12-year-old. Oh, yeah, this person's, like, almost a you know, teenager in a university. And when I look at my son, he's like, oh, he's still a little boy. You know, so I don't know what's going to do. And he's not. He's growing up. So I sit in the car, I listen to him, we'll try to talk more about football or what he's interested in and, and try to learn what that's like. I'll, after work, my wife, she'll sit down and I'll sit there and I'll just listen to her, talk, listen to her work. And part of it is me saying, remind myself, Bert, you, you still have to pastor and care for your family no matter what. And it's realizing that in every situation that you're in, you've still got to be active and living in those places. Now when we break that down, we talk about our friendships. And I know what we all want. We all say, oh, I wish I, had, I wish I had a best friend who understood and just spend time with me and could listen to me and, and me and me and, and me and me and me and me and me and all sorts of stuff. You know, like, it, you start realizing, you're really, you're the horrible friend. You're so selfish. You basically, you want someone to sit there. You, if you could, you would want a little robot to be there and listen to you and just take care of you all the time. Actually, to really develop friendships, you have to say, actually, I want to I know about what's going on in this person's life. I want to care for them. I want to be there for them. And I will tell you, for so many of us, we are lonely people. We do not have good community. We know people. We might know a lot of people. We might have a thousand friends on Facebook and 500 followers. But if you really know them, like when things go bad, you're going to turn to. And you say, oh, my sister. What if it's your sister or your brother who's passed away? Where are you going to go then? You have to start understanding how important it is to build community. And it takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. But it is also very worthwhile. When I had a really hard time making friends uh, growing up, surprisingly, um, not that I'm awkward or anything like that. Um, and one, one thing that I really knew, I, I didn't have any good guy friends. And so the joke was, um, oh, Bert, you, uh, you should pray that you can find a boyfriend. Um, and, uh, you know, because, you know, back then, it was a very different perspective on LGBTQ. Anyways, um, so, I, you know, I'd pray, and I'd try to intentionally have friendships, but it never seemed to work out. And I said, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, you know I, don't know, I don't know how to do it. And then, actually, when I moved out here, um, I met a guy, and it was really great. And um, he became my best friend. No, he, he there's a Malaysian up in Sheffield that I was, and, and we got to know each other. And uh, he was the first Malaysian I've ever known. And uh, we ended up starting to, to talk to each other more and to be to share about things and be open with each other. And that was really important because I, I suddenly realized, yeah, Bert, if I'm not learning how to converse or to be open with people, then I will just be so locked in my own world that I'll get lost. And it was really precious because we ended up being really good friends. We said, oh, yeah, I'll be, can I, you can be my best man at my wedding. In the end, he moved back to Malaysia, so I was like, oh, you don't have to fly out. It's fine. He asked me. I said, I'm not going to fly out. Uh, I made a video for him instead. Um, and what's funny is, at the same time, him and a couple other people in Sheffield, we were working with the youth group together. And we formed a really good friendship. And in that friendship, we could talk about not just the church, but each other's lives. That we still have a WhatsApp, this, like, 
15 years later, actually it's 17 years later, we still have a WhatsApp group together that we all kind of talk to each other and randomly drop messages and say hi to each other to share about life and to talk about, you know, what God has done in the past and what he's doing in the present. And you realize those friendships are so important, and you don't, <laughs> most of you guys here are quite young. And if you're feeling lonely now, it's not a time for you to feel pathetic and feel sorry for yourself. It's actually your time to say, like, boy, I better get to work at being present with the people around me, to start listening, to start engaging with them. Because it doesn't get easier to make friends the older you get. Actually, it gets harder and gets more awkward. And so starting to do that now becomes important. And we're not talking about, like, just if you're a guy, all your friends are girls. That's going to be awkward. If you're a girl, all your friends are guys. It's time to say, God, help me have a good balance of friendships to understand what that looks like. The first lesson from David's life is actually be present, forging and developing living relationships. Now, if we think about that with your family and you think about that with your friends, it's finally thinking about that with God. You know, walking with God every day, say, God, actually, I want to have a living relationship with you. Like, I believe that you are present here with us. So why don't I recognize that? Why don't I understand that? Can you change that way of thinking? We're going to go on, think about David a little bit more. So the second lesson that we can learn from David's life is actually walk in holiness. Um, (laughs) So the first thing that happens is David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister. David is really angry, but does nothing. Meanwhile, his uh, second son, Absalom, is furious. He is angry, and he hates his brother. And he basically hates him for two years, and then we'll find out later what happens. But when we talk about walking in holiness, we think about David's life. And for us, when we read about David's life, we read the Psalms, we hear about David and Goliath, we hear about how, how good he was, you know, as a king in some parts. And we think, oh, man, he's, he's really great. He's really holy. He's really wonderful. But none of his kids seem to know any of that, right? What do his kids seem to do? They, they follow all the bad things. Like, they don't, they don't love God. They don't write psalms. You don't have a bunch of psalms from David's sons. In fact, you only have the things that, like, David kind of did kind of wrong. Uh, ben pointed out last week that actually David, in his one act with David and Bathsheba, basically commits, like— <laughs> five of these uh, Ten Commandments, he breaks them, right? He has someone murdered. He commits adultery. He steals. He uh, lies to make this happen. He covets not just his neighbor's possessions, but his, actually his neighbor's wife. And he does this thing, and it's horrible. And you find that actually those kind of sins that he has, that gets passed on to his kids. Like, that's what his kids learn. They learn, actually, Amnon learns that, yeah, Maybe it's okay to rape someone, just like my dad did with Bathsheba. Absalom learns, you know, maybe it's okay to, to kill someone, and we'll find out that's what he does to his brother, because that's what I saw my dad do. You start realizing when you have a distant father, the kind of things you see from their life may not always be the whole picture. I mean, David had another whole side to him, a whole side where he loved God, where he wrote amazing things, where he trusted God so much. But it's like the kids only saw this bad side. We'll see what happens actually with, with Absalom. Two years later, when Absalom's uh, sheep shears were at Balhazar near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. So this is two years after what happens. But during these two years, Absalom's still angry. He's still furious. In fact, he's doing this because he's plotting to kill his, his, uh, his half-brother, Amnon. So he's got his sheep shears here, and he says to the king, um, 
hey, uh, all my brothers can come and bring their sheep, and we'll have a sheep shearing party, and everyone come by, and I'll, I'll have everyone of the sheep sheared for them. Come on. And, and the king actually says, uh, dude, we don't want to inconvenience you. They've got a lot of brothers. Um, he's probably like, i got 22 brothers here, man. You don't have to bring them all. All their sheep is kind of a big mess. And then Absalom says, oh, well, you know what? You know what? If, if you don't want to come, David, that's cool. But please, let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king goes, why would, why would he go with you? I was like, oh, please, please, please. How old is he, 10? You know, so he sent him with Amnon and the rest of the king's son. In the end, David gives in and says, oh, sure, okay, fine. Everyone go sheep sharing party. Um, Absalom has hated his brother for two years, and King David has no idea. Amnon raped Absalom's sister, and the sister has had to live with Absalom since then because she's vile and rejected by everybody else. And King David has no idea. And Absalom says, please, please send Amnon to this party as well because, hey, right? Cool. And King David's like, oh, sounds a bit fishy, but okay, go on. Like, he doesn't get it all. What happens actually then after that is Absalom orders his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. Absalom is so filled with hate, with uh, anger, with bitterness, with rage. He feels like the king has done nothing. So he sees this injustice and he wants to right it, that he's willing to kill, you know, his older brother. And so and what's, what's even funnier is the words that he says here are kind of reflected from the Bible. In, in Joshua, what does it say? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. You know, do not be afraid. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. This is the same thing that he's saying. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you the order? Be strong and brave. In other translations, it actually says be strong and courageous. There's this part where Absalom seems to understand some things from Scripture. But the way it's coming out is so selfish or self-motivated. He doesn't understand truly what it is. See, the sad part is from David and uh, Amnon and Absalom, he's passing down all the bad stuff, all the sins, but none of the good stuff. Like, what did David's kids actually learn from him? And how come? Why did they learn that? I was thinking about this. They know David's the king. They know he has a special relationship with God. But at the same time, then they see what happens with Bathsheba. Now, now think about this. Dad's already got seven wives. He's already got like, I don't know, 15 kids already. Absalom, Amnon, they all know each other. Then suddenly they kind of get word, oh, yeah, dad's marrying another woman. Oh, wait, but something else happened. Something else happened with uh, this baby. Not just that. Oh, I heard Prophet Nathan showed up. Prophet Nathan came and said, oh, the baby's going to die because, oh, I heard dad, like, just, like, slept with her or just took this woman. No, no, I heard that David actually got her, her husband killed. Right? You can imagine the gossip, the kind of war, the, the, the side conversations that happen in the palace ground, especially when the prophet shows up and they know something's not right. When they look at that and they think about that, they're like, oh, well, what, what's the point of this? You know, this, this God may not be real. It's just lip service. 
So they start following in that kind of pattern. They start following that kind of lifestyle. It's convicting because it makes us realize, you know, this is why it's so important for us to walk in holiness. Because the way we live, that reflects Christ. When I was doing youth work, actually, a lot of times the kids would come up to me and they say, Oh, Bert, you know, I think it's really great, the youth group. I can really see Jesus at work in your life, and, and I think it's really good. But then I go home, and my mom just starts shouting me, and she says she's a Christian. And then they go to the casino later, or they always yell at me. Like, I don't think it's real, because I can see in my mom, she says she's a Christian. But then the way they act is not real. So I, I think what you have is good, but it's not for me. Because I've seen Christians, and they're like hypocrites. Like, we've, we've, we've all kind of seen that too, right? We know a lot of our friends say, oh, yeah, no, it's fine that you go to church, but I've had bad experience with Christians, you know? And it can be all sorts of reasons. I'm sure one of my ex-girlfriends would never date another Christian because I was a Christian, and I didn't treat her the best I could. And you start realizing, actually, how important it is that God wants us to walk in holiness, to actually live Christ to them. When I think about my kids, I think I realize it's not just me telling them, oh, you got to go to church, or you have to be a good person because that's what God wants. It's actually if I'm not living it, if not walking alongside them, if I'm not showing them that actually I know how to ask God for forgiveness or to speak to him, then they're not going to learn either. It would have been very different if David sat down with his kids and said, hey, this is what happened. And what I did was wrong before God. And this is why one of this, my sons had to die. And this is why I am so conflicted. And this is why I cry out to God. Like if he had shared his psalms with the kids to understand where those things come from. Like it would have been very different. They would have seen a living relationship with God. But you get the picture that none of the sons saw that. Partially because David was distant, never present. But secondly, but they saw his walk that wasn't holy. For us, I think the real challenge is to say, hey, look, if we want our friendships to grow for the people around us, it's really saying, God, let me, let me walk in holiness. Let me live right. Let me live Christ everywhere. Let me share that Christ-like life out. You can't compromise. You can't compromise along the way. And this is where we come to our third point about David. The third point about David is actually you have a chance now to, to break the chain of sin, to not let it continue down the next kind of line. What, what do I mean about this? Well, d- let's back up a little bit. Do you know David, uh, when he was first called, uh, anointed as king? It was a really interesting kind of scenario, right? So in 1 Samuel 16, it says this. Um, the prophet Samuel shows up, and he says, Oh, Bring out all your sons, Jesse. Bring out all your sons because we want to look at them. And uh, they go through all the sons, and he's like, oh, I'm, God, is this the guy, next king, next king? And he goes down the whole line, and it's none of them. And then uh, Samuel has to ask, are these all the sons you have? Now, and I give you a little context to this. When a prophet shows up to your city, it's either you're in big trouble or there's some good news. So in verse 5 of this, actually, the elders of the city, when they heard Samuel's coming, they came to meet him at the door. And actually, they were trembling. So, in the Bible says, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come in peace? You know, do you come peaceably? Because they're scared of what the prophet's going to do. Now, if everyone knows in the prophet's arrival, either really good news or really bad news, and he finds out it's good news, 
People say, okay, oh, yeah, okay, everyone come. Everyone, you know, we're having a big thing. The prophet's here in town. Everyone come and see. So for David not to be there is rather peculiar. And so they say, oh, well, there's the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, David has all these brothers. Now, all these brothers had stuff to do too, right? It's not like David was just tending the sheep and that was the most important job. No one could get away from it. All these brothers are older. I'm sure they have equally, if not more important jobs. And yet they were all able to be there. Why was David left out? Why wasn't David invited to the scene? In, in the end, he gets sent for, he comes, and they say, this is the one, he looks really good looking and, and stuff, and they're like, that's it. But what we find out from this is actually, maybe David was excluded because actually he wasn't really part of the family. He was Jesse's son, but maybe out of sin. We get some other clues for this because if you try to ask who is David's mother, you don't know. The Bible doesn't say who David's mother is. And this is kind of a big deal because actually they talk about who Moses' mother is. They talk about some other patriarch's mothers, but they don't mention David's mother. I mean, heck, we have all of David's wives and their mothers, a bunch of these kids, but they don't mention David's mother. Why? The chances is because, well, maybe Jesse married, maybe David's mother was a prostitute. Maybe Jesse went somewhere else. And the baby came from someone he shouldn't have been seeing. Or maybe uh, David's mother afterwards had an affair with another man. And so she got cut off from the family. But what we do see is that for some reason or another, David is not just the black sheep of the family. He's almost a rejected person of the family. You pick this up in some of the Psalms, actually. Some of the Psalms reference this because it was David's writing. He says, I'm an outcast from my family. My brothers hate me. Or I was born in sin. Like, he has this understanding that somehow he's not part of this, right? It starts to come together. When David and Goliath, when David goes out there and he shows up and he's bringing food to his brothers and his dad said, go bring this food to them, his brothers don't say, hey, good to see you, my youngest brother that I love. They say, why are you out here? You just love violence. You, basically, you useless kid. You know, they're making fun of him because they don't like him. Think about this some more. David has how many brothers? He's a bunch of brothers. None of them work for him like he's the king none of them are employed by him in fact when it starts actually four of them decide to join saul because they're like well we don't respect you like if my youngest if i had a brother a younger brother and he decided he's going to become a ceo of a famous company i tell you i would be trying to get a job with him all the time right like trying to upgrade my current financial position not that i'm in this for the money anyways let's move on from that example um you know there's a sense where the brothers just did not like him because he was probably the wretched one. He was born in sin. David is born from this sinful relationship that we don't get any more information about because it's their dirty little secret, right? But then when we see in David's life, right, he carries on in his own life with sinful relationships. Not only that, his children carry on in sinful relationships. In fact, so much so that the son that becomes the king for the next decade or next uh, part, uh, King Solomon, right, he takes it all to another level, right? King Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Like, who's the guy who goes out and counts, uh, we're looking for wife number 524, 524, are you here? You know, like, it's not just that. You start realizing the reason God is saying this is like, look, 
You don't want your heart being turned away. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of God, of David his father. I don't know about you, but in my own family, in my own family's past, in my own personal life, I know that there are sins or habits that I don't want to see continue into the next line. We hear about families that have fathers that have anger issues, who they get transferred to their sons, who bring it into the next family. We hear about chains of addiction or alcoholism or gambling that their kids learn from their parents that bring it to the next generation. We see lust or hate or insecurity or fear, and we see those things being passed down from generation to generation. And actually what we're trying to say is, and what God actually does later for us is says, look, don't let this chain of sin continue. It can stop. When you start realizing that actually because of Jesus, that moment has changed. See, these guys before, they, there was no Jesus, right? They, there was this the desire. You just had to use your own power to try to stop that. And you found that David not only could not stop that, but it got progressively worse. If you read the whole book of Judges, it's about the Israelite people getting progressively worse. Because no matter how much they tried to use their own strength, they couldn't. But when Jesus comes, Jesus does this amazing thing where he says, look, number one, I was born in a non-sinful relationship. I was born perfect. The introduction, he's trying to say, look, I am greater than King David because of this. Not only that, my victory, King David had victory over these nations, but no victory over his own life. Jesus comes and says, I have victory over your lives. I have victory over sin. The patterns that you saw in the past that you feel like might be a curse, that you're afraid that it's going to be in your same families or your own marriage or in your parenting, you can say, actually, God, no more. I don't want that anymore. Instead, I rely fully and totally on the grace, love, and power of Jesus. See, there's a verse in Romans 8 that says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Like, this is the beautiful thing here. And when it's talking about sons, it's not talking about sons in terms of gender, right? Um, it's talking about sons in terms of inheritance, because the oldest son got the inheritance. But see, all of us, he's saying, get the inheritance. What we used to have from our families or from sin was this kind of inheritance. That sin, those habits, those attitudes, that thinking. That used to be the inheritance that we had. That used to be the patterns that we were stuck in. But what Jesus is saying, look, you are now children of God. God himself is your father. You call him Abba, Father. You are close to him. And not only that, what God gives, the treasure that he gives, the inheritance that he gives, is that you are now free from that chain of sin. You don't have to carry that into your next life, into your next children. And it's great. I love it because it says, look, provided we also suffer with him. It's mean, look, we fight that battle that we have in ourselves against that sin because we know that we are victorious in Christ. And when I think about it, I think, yeah, God, I don't want my kids to be the same as me. I know where my flaws are. I don't want that to be the same way. And I can look at my past and say, I keep making mistakes. 
But God, I suffer against that because I don't want that to continue. And I believe, Jesus, that you have already set me free. So I want to walk in the sonship of God as opposed to the failings of my humanity. This is a, a powerful truth that God wants to show us that actually he has a power to transform things. In my own family's life, my, my family has its own, all families have their own drama. Chinese families are very good at having drama and then not talking about it to anyone ever. They'll tell you once and they'll say, don't mention it to anybody, right? We all have our kind of secrets. My parents, for one of the things, they, they almost got divorced. They were very close. There was one, one day and I, I told them, don't get divorced selfishly because... I just want to have a stable family. I don't, I don't understand how my mom managed to get through it um, or the difficulties or the things they kind of faced. And I thought to myself, wow. Now, fast forward. Um, my dad became a Christian uh, later on in his life, and I've shared about this. He's changed in many ways. In many ways, he's still the same, but in a traumatic amount of ways. It's so different. Like, he'll give us hugs or say he loves us or like our photos on Instagram. Um, you know, the things that really matter. Um, and uh, my, my dad recently went to visit them in Taiwan. They were there. Uh, and they sat down with me and uh, my mom and said, oh, oh, Bert, come sit. Let's, let's talk for a little bit. And he says, oh, because we, he said it's their 50th anniversary this year, 50th uh, wedding anniversary. Quite a miracle, miracle for anyone to get to 50 years old and more or less uh, 50 years of marriage. Um, and he says, um, yeah, actually, uh, they were already planning to come to the UK. We're having uh, all our families coming. They're going to hang out with us in the Peak District. We're going to show them around and spend time with them. And my dad sits down and says, oh, um, you know, it's our 50th anniversary. And uh, I wasn't a Christian when we got married, but now I'm a Christian. And uh, I'd like to have a, a Christian wedding. And so I, and he, and my, mom was sh- my mom was shocked because she's like, what, what is he saying? And then she just flat out said, oh, my gosh. God changed you more than I could even ever imagine, right? Because this is, you know, this is the marriage that was at one point at a brink. You know, like raising one kid is hard. Raising three kids is really difficult. And at the same time, God shaped my dad's heart. And it's one of those things where God cannot just redeem the future, but he can also transform the past. It's hard for me to imagine this. So my dad coming and saying, oh, um, yeah, yeah, so I'd, I'd, if, could, you, could you tell us what we can do to have a, a, a marriage ceremony? I was like, this is so awesome. I got to baptize my dad, now I get to marry him. <laughs> and it was like, it's, I thought, wow, what, what an amazing kind of strange honor. Um, and I'm like, I'm going to cry like crazy. I got to make sure I keep myself together. Um, then I thought, oh, great, I have to plan. That means I have to work. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's my brain. Um, and I, I mean, it's really funny. And then my dad says, oh, but that means I've got to buy my mom a ring. And so my mom's like, yay. <laughs> and then my dad says, you have to buy me a ring too. And so, okay. Um, they're funny. Um, but, but for myself, it made me realize, look, when you understand that, that, that God's your father, and I think my dad's still just learning what this looks like, and my mom's learning what that looks like too, and we're all kind of learning it. It's still saying, you know, the inheritance that we now have from God is, is different than the inheritance that we had before. Like, to me, that gives me hope. Like, sometimes when you're struggling with the same sin, or it's the same thing that flares up again, or you look at your own family, and you're like, I don't want that thing to happen to my own family, and you get scared. Like, I know for me, I get scared, and I get worried. Even now, because I have kids, I get more worried. I forget that, actually, no, 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 no. The story is rewritten. 
Jesus' arrival means, actually, I, I, I not just have the power to walk in holiness now, I have the freedom and the courage to know that it is going to be different. I am not condemned. Uh, there's a part in the Bible where it says, um, Jesus became the curse so that we would no longer be cursed. And if you think about maybe your family traditions or their attitudes or their sins as a curse, that you can understand that now Jesus has broken that. That Jesus became the curse for us so that we can have his inheritance. There's this beautiful freedom that we have in that. And it's where we have to really say, God, you break that chain. I'm not insecure or fearful or angry or lustful anymore. I'm really going to fight this because of your victory. I don't mind suffering that because I know the glory that I have with you. Lesson number three really is break the patterns of sin and live in the love of Christ. Like there's something so precious knowing that actually, God, you are my father. And you are helping me. And you're not a father like King David who wasn't present or distant from his children. God, you're a loving father who walks alongside us every day. I can go to God and say, God, I'm just, I just need a hug today, actually. I don't know what I'm doing in my life. I'm a failure. And God, can you please just help me? And you know what? You turn to him and say, God, and you say, I'm a failure. And God's like, no, you're not a failure. I just wrote it in that book that you're supposed to be reading right now. And I love you. But my Chinese failure, not doctor. And God's like, it's okay. You know, like there's a, something so precious about knowing that we have Abba Father. Like just to sum this up, if we look and we understand that unlike King David, God through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit means we have this very different life. It's the three reminders for us. The first is be present. Be active and present in your relationships and your friendships. Second, you know, walk in holiness. Really walk in holiness. Say, you know what? I, I am going to walk differently. For myself and for my friends, for my family, I'm going to be different. And finally, break the patterns of sin. Actually, the, the, the joy is this. Actually, Jesus has already broken the chains of sin. What we're saying is break the patterns. I don't want to be stuck in the same routine anymore. But I have this life. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we know that the chains have been broken, Lord. And we cry out because actually for some of us, we still hold on to these chains of anger or of rage or of bitterness, of unforgiveness, Lord. And we let those things lord over our lives. But Jesus, we know that there is power, great power in your name, great power in the victory that you have. So as we come and worship, Lord, will you minister powerfully to our lives for the sins that you convict us of now? Let us know that you have broken the power that it has over us, that we are no longer heirs of that sinful life, but we are heirs of your great inheritance. We declare your victory over our lives, Lord, and we come and worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.